Amen. Thank you. Again, if you are able, please rise to your feet as we read God's Word together, both from Isaiah and from the Gospel of Luke. Here's the reading of God's Word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue, synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you have told us in your word that you will uphold it, that you will be faithful to it, that it will never pass, that the grass, the flowers, they will wither, but your word stands firm. So uphold that promise here and now today. Watch over these words, mold and shape lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm standing in the middle of a cavernous United Airlines terminal, or, or uh, yeah, the terminal at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. It's early in the morning, as I said, and there are a few people in this cavernous terminal. If you've ever been there, you know it's a pretty cool place. And I'm in the spot where there's all the kiosks, and you're checking in your bags and checking into your flight. And it's me and maybe a smattering of United Airlines attendants, random passengers walking through. But Essentially, it's just me and about a hundred kiosks. And as I'm at the kiosk, I see to the corner of my eye an individual across this cavernous room. And I'm thinking, this is a very, very large man. And so I pretended to be busy with things and pretended that my 
ticket wasn't working just to see who this person was because he had to be somebody famous or, or at least somebody that I, I think I might know, right? Sure enough, this person comes closer and closer and I still am trying to pretend that I'm messing with my ticket and these types of things. And Now mind you, I'm the only person in this huge terminal and there's all kinds of kiosks that this person could have gone to. But at this particular time, this gentleman stands to the kiosk directly beside me. Why he did this, I have no idea. There was a hundred other ones, but he stood right beside me. And I looked up to him, and I'm 6'5", so I'm t- taller than the average Joe. I look up. I look up to seven feet one inches, and I say, good morning, Mr. Cartwright. Now, if you know anything about late 70s, 80s, 90s NBA basketball, you know that Mr. Cartwright is Bill Cartwright, who played for the New York Knicks and, of course, world champion with the Chicago Bulls. Now, Bill Cartwright's known for his championships, but he's also known for his deep, deep voice. And he replied, good morning. And it's even lower than that. But there's something about this scene. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. Not because it was Bill Cartwright, because I didn't know that until the very end. But there was something about him that was just present in this massive, massive room. He filled the room with his size. My eyes, even though they might have been out of the corner of my eyes, never really stopped looking at Bill Cartwright because he just had that type of presence and that type of aura about him. And then he opened his mouth and it even got all that much bigger and larger. Maybe you've been to airports in similar ways where there are a number of people. And you just think, wow, that person kind of sticks out. Here in Luke chapter 4, we have a similar type of thing. All the eyes were fixed on Jesus. They couldn't help it. Every eye was fixed on Him. Because after all, isn't this just Joseph's son? Isn't this just a normal guy? Isn't this just someone who grew up in our town? Isn't this just Jesus? The question I have for us this morning in this Advent season is a simple one. It's really quite easy, but it's extremely important. Where are our eyes this morning? Where are our eyes? Where are your eyes this morning? Maybe I could put it differently. What has captivated you today? What captivates you tomorrow morning? What excites you? What motivates you? Where are your eyes? Where is that thing or things that you just can't stop looking at? Maybe literally. Maybe spiritually. What has captured your gaze? What's captured your imagination? What's captured your fascination? We enter not into an empty, cavernous United Airlines terminal, but back into this crowded first century synagogue. You see, the synagogue was indeed the place where people gathered for all types of reasons. Yes, to worship, but it was also a social gathering place. This was not, as it said, Luke said, it was Jesus' custom to be there. 
It was his custom to read. This wasn't out of the ordinary. It's what he did. It's what they knew him to do. It's what other men would do as well. It was the bustle of activity in a small place in the, out, in the backwoods of the Middle East. A little place called Nazareth. It's here then in this crowded synagogue where Luke tells us this is the start of Jesus' ministry. His earthly ministry. It's here that Luke tells this particular story for a reason. It's here where it begins. We are told that Jesus' parents had taken their eyes off of Jesus. And where did they find Him? In the temple. It's here where Luke puts his eyes back onto Jesus. We're told about John the Baptist and Jesus in previous chapters of Luke's Gospel. We're told about his birth to a virgin girl. And then Luke tells us this story about the scroll of Isaiah being given to Jesus to read. The text that was read was what Jesus read out of Luke, or excuse me, out of Isaiah. But what does this all mean? Why did Jesus read this particular scripture? Why did Luke choose to tell this story about the beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry? What's it all about? Why? Why this particular thing? Why at this particular time? In order to better understand Luke chapter 4, we have to better understand Isaiah because this is just what we do as good Bible readers who are cooperating with the text. As we read the Bible, and if we see a quote from another portion of the Bible, we have to go back and we have to ask ourselves why and what's going on back then to understand what's going on at the present time. So Jesus is reading this prophecy from the book of Isaiah. So what we need to understand, and this is just a massively, massively vague outline of the book of Isaiah. There's a lot of information in Isaiah, 66 chapters. So here's what this broad outline looks like. The first 39 chapters is Isaiah basically saying and condemning, here are all your sins, Israel. This is how you've gone against the law and the will of the Lord. And because of that, here is the sentence that's coming down on you. The sentence that's coming your way, Israel, is a Babylonian captivity. This is going to happen to you because you rebelled against the Lord your God. Chapters 1 to 39, right? So then chapters 40 to 66 are hope, restoration, Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Anointed One, the coming of the Savior to make things right. So where did we read from? (laughs) In chapters 1 to 39? No, we read from chapter 61 which is talking about the hope of a Messiah, the hope of one that will come to make things right, to to better understand restoration and hope. The people that were gathered in that synagogue knew that very, very, very well. They knew Isaiah because Isaiah was a massive part of their culture and a massive part of what they understood and what they hoped for. Luke obviously knew the same thing. Luke knew the context. Luke knew the context. The context was 
a post-Babylonian exile, right? The people were no longer in Babylon. They had been sent to Babylon. He knew that. They'd been taken out of Babylon. He knew that. Now they're back and they're still waiting. They're still waiting for the Messiah. They're still waiting for the Christ, the anointed one, to come. And now they were under a little bit of a different kind of oppression from the Roman Empire. They've been waiting for a very, very long time for the coming of the Christ, for the anointed one of God. The wonderful song, O Holy Night, reminds us that the world is weary. It was a weary world in the first century. They were weary from war. They were weary from oppression, from persecution, weary from a Roman Empire. They were weary. They were tired. Tired of it all. They were, they were ready for the Messiah to come. They were ready for the Christ to overthrow their enemies. They were weary from their waiting. Weary from their impatience. Weary from their wonder. Weary, weary from their fear. Weary from their anxiety. Weary maybe from asking the question, why? Why, Lord, haven't You come? Weary from asking, when? When are You coming? When are You going to make things right? The passage that we read from Isaiah 61 then is the very hope of that promise. That there is one coming. There is one coming that will indeed reverse the oppression and bring salvation to the people. This then is the context in which Jesus stands up, a scroll is given to him, and he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And all eyes were on Jesus. Yes, because he was reading, just as if I stand up here and I read, or whoever would, your eyes are on him. So it's natural that all eyes would be on him. But it was more than that. They were amazed. They were in awe. They couldn't believe how he was speaking and communicating these words, even just as he read the scroll. Then he sits down. He sits down in the synagogue and they begin to have more of a conversation. All eyes still fixed on Jesus. All eyes on Him. And he says, today this Scripture is fulfilled in me. And now all of a sudden the words aren't in awe, but they were filled with wrath. And they wanted to drag Him out to throw Him off of a cliff. Mr. Postumus came to me and one of my friends when I was in high school. We were in his government class and we were studying the judicial, judicial system and courts of law and uh, eyewitness testimonies and things like this. And he came to me and one of my good friends, and we've been friends for as long as I could remember. And he says, I want you guys to do something for me before we enter into class. 
And uh, we said, okay. We didn't know what we were in store for. He says, I want you guys to fight each other. We're like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, no, just hold on. Just, just wait for a second here and, and go with me on this one. He says, I don't want you to actually hit each other. I want you to wrestle and pretend that you're punching one another. I want you to create a scene, a really big scene. And so all of our classmates knew that we'd been friends for a very long time. We enter into the class. He sits, my friend sits right in front of me, and I start you know, putting spitballs in his ears and doing gross things that teenage boys do just to pester him, to pester him. And he turned around and he started screaming at me, knock it off, knock it off. And we didn't act like this with one another. So I kept doing it and kept doing little things to annoy him. Meanwhile, Mr. Postumus, the teacher's still not there. It's an empty classroom. And if you remember your high school classroom days, if the teacher wasn't there, you didn't sit there nicely. You talked and you did things, and right? And so I kept pestering him, pestering him. And he was getting madder and madder and madder. And before long, he threw a desk and he jumped out of his chair and he jumped on top of me and just started pounding my chest and he was fighting me. So we were going back and forth, back and forth like this. And then Mr. Postumus, who was about the size of me, pulls us like two little kittens away from one another and grabs us by our shirt tails, literally drags us out of the hall and he says to us, you scared the out of them. And he's like, good job. Why do I tell that story? It was a story about eyewitness accounts. And so he went around the room and we began to ask everybody what they heard, what they saw, what they didn't see, and what they didn't hear. And it was amazing just in that short amount of time of how many different opinions there were about the events that just took place minutes before. How quickly eyes change. And even when we're looking at something, we don't even always know what we're looking at. And so my question comes back to us, what has your gaze this morning? And perhaps I could even take it one step further and say, I have my gaze on Jesus, but what do I see about Jesus? Is he the one who we should stone? Or is he the one that is the anointed Christ? So maybe the question is, who is Jesus? All eyes in the synagogue were on Jesus. And how quickly things changed. Most in that room thought he was a heretic. Some acknowledged him as just Jesus, Joseph's son. How could Joseph's son be the anointed Christ? Even with their eyes on him, they could not see. They saw a different Christ. They saw Joseph's son. He cannot be the anointed one of God. Can he? On this day in the synagogue, Jesus declared himself just that. The anointed one of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that was given so many years ago. The one to bring hope and rest to a really weary world. Why do I say all of that? Last two years have been a thing, right? As they say. A lot's happened. As we look back the last two or three years, a lot's happened in the life of this church. A lot's happened in this world. 
not quite sure what's happening, what's going to happen, how it's all going to shake out. I think if you're like me, you're weary. Weary of the opinions. Weary from talking heads. Weary from the next thing being the biggest thing. Weary from emotions being frayed. Even weary from gas prices being higher than what we would hope. Weary. A lot like the people in the first century. Tired. We're tired from life. So the question, once again, when we are weary, where are our eyes? What do we focus on? Are they on Jesus? As we see here in the Gospel of Luke, there is a danger that even when our eyes are on Jesus, that we may not actually see Jesus. So what do we see? Who do we see? Well, my prayer is for us this morning and throughout this Advent season is that our eyes are on the anointed Christ. My prayer for us is that when our eyes are on Jesus, that we see Him as the reason for our hope. He is our only hope. Not in how good we are, how moral we are, how right we think we are. Not in which color you vote for, not on midterm elections, not on presidential elections. Our hope is only in Christ, on the anointed Son of God, who brings hope and rest to a weary world. In our day-to-day lives, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find any sliver of hope, isn't it? We try and we try and we search and we search. We go down internet rabbit trails. We go down periodic rabbit trails. We go through literature trails. Try to find some ray of hope. Something I can hold on to that says, this is what this looks like. This is what's secure. This is what I know. This is what I can hold on to. And it seems like it's becoming more and more and more and more difficult. But then we come to Luke chapter 4 and we say, here... This is how we have hope. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is our source of hope. Where are our eyes? Jesus is the hope that we desperately long for and desire. But when we find ourselves in those places of weariness, does Scripture give us any answers? Like, even we can say, I see Jesus in Luke chapter 4. I see that this is true. But it even feels like I can't quite grasp that. I can't put that in a journal and say, let's, let's do this and this and this. How, how, how do I have the answers? Where, where do I go? Where do I turn? The passage that Jesus quotes 
from Isaiah 61 is full of practical answers. It's full of practical answers because he fully acknowledges he is the anointed Son of God. He is the source of our hope. And because of that, he then says to us all of these things. He says, what is his function? What's his job description? What is it he's supposed to do to give us hope, something to grab onto? And the first thing he says, it's my job, it's Jesus' job to proclaim the good news. You say, okay, great. We've heard that a thousand times. The good news. What's the good news? And this is, this is a quick, quick review, obviously, right? A straightforward and very simple way to say the good news is this. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was born of the Virgin Mary. He took on flesh. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh to live a perfect life that we couldn't live. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live to die our death that was meant for you and for me. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to die a death that was meant for us to rise again so that my sin, my death, would be defeated. Simply and only because of grace and love and mercy. That's good news. But there's something more in verse 18 that Luke describes to us, that Jesus quotes from, that Isaiah prophesied about. Do you see that? To bring good news to the poor. What's he talking about? Yes to the financially poor. Amen. This is true. He brings good news to those who don't have resources. This is good news. To bring peace and rest and hope to those of us who have a difficult time making our ends meet. But it's not only that. It is that, but it's more than just that. He brings good news to those who recognize that they need good news. Those who recognize their need for grace and mercy. The good news is for those of us who know without this good news, there is no good news. Without this good news, there is no hope. Without this good news, I have no hope because I have not kept the law of the Lord. I know it. You know that about me. Without this good news, I have no hope. Without this good news, there's no hope for anyone. But the good news is also for the good news for the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit have an understanding of something. They haven't stored up enough righteousness. They're poor. They haven't stored up a enough good works. They haven't stored up enough morality. They haven't stored up enough period. They don't measure up. When we look at the, the good works bank account, it's bankrupt. It's negative. Everything bounces. 
the poor in spirit have no equity, have no assets. And so when Jesus comes and says he's to proclaim good news, to bring them to himself, to fill their bank account with his righteousness, that's incredible news. That's news that we can't even fathom. That's a bigger kind of grace and a bigger kind of mercy than we can even begin to understand. But there's a flip side to that same coin. If it's good news for some, it's bad news for others. It's bad news for those who believe they have stored up enough equity of morality and righteousness that we are good enough that we're better than that person, that we're better than those people, that we're better than whatever category you want to place. Why is that bad news? Because those people don't need their bank account full because it's already full. It's bad news because if Jesus gives that kind of grace and mercy to those whose bank accounts are bankrupt, and you and I believe that ours is full, It doesn't become grace, it becomes unfair. That's not right. How could Jesus do that? I've worked my whole life for this. I keep the law. I'm a good person. I'm morally upstanding. It's not fair. It's not right. That's bad news because that's not what I'm supposed to get. Good news is for the poor. Good news is for the prodigal. Good news is for the poor in spirit. You see, but both sides have their eyes on Jesus, don't they? The poor in spirit have their eyes on Jesus. The self-righteous have their eyes on Jesus. But they see something completely different. One sees grace. One sees something unfair. Where are our eyes? Are my eyes? I confess that too often my eyes are unfair. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. For the most part, I'm a pretty good guy. It's not fair that grace goes to that person. The person who doesn't know or do or act the way, it's not right. Too often my eyes are fixated on that. If I'm honest, I don't want grace for anyone other than me. Where are my eyes? The question I have for us again is, when we have this eyewitness account of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do we see? Who do we see? Do we see grace? Do we see mercy? It starts with us. It starts with each one of us. That Jesus proclaims that He is the anointed Son of God to proclaim the good news to the poor. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him. And I wish I had about five more hours to keep preaching it all the way through Isaiah 61. 
as we could and I could. But then Jesus moves forward also and he says he gives us liberty. He gives liberty to the blind, to the beggar, to the brokenhearted, to set free the captive. And these are literal things. To set free the captive, yes. Is he talking about prisoners? Absolutely. But he's also talking about our own captivity. Where are our eyes? What are we captivated by? To set us free from our captivity. And to set our focus and our gaze upon him. And to usher in his kingdom is what he says at the end there. The hope that we have in the anointed Son of God is that his kingdom will know no end. And he reigns victorious and sovereign with righteousness and justice and mercy and grace. And so as we enter into this Advent season and we look forward to Christmas, we look forward to all the wonders and the fun of this time of the year. My plea with you and with myself is to focus our eyes on the anointed Son of God. The one who gives grace to a weary and broken world. A world just like ours. This is what we celebrate. This is what we worship. This is what we long for. This kind of Christ. So you join with me this season. And may all of our eyes be on him. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for your grace to us, for your mercy towards us. We pray that you would continue to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And so now as we come to this table, May you fill us, may you nurture us, may you grow us in that grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.